Today, we welcome back Dr. Rishi Sriram to the podcast. You guys talk to us about him all the time. And so we emailed him and said, what else you got for us? And boy, did he deliver. Today, Dr. Sriram talks to us about the five M's of talent, which are mindset, myelin, mastery, motivation, and mentorship. We also had a wonderful extended conversation with Dr. Sriram, where we followed up with some questions and thoughts we had about what we talked about on today's episode. Join us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash learnsmarterpodcast with a $5 monthly donation to support the work that we do here on the podcast and to hear our extended conversation with Dr. Sriram. You'll also have full access to our back catalog of Patreon. We love it when he comes on because it feels like we're back in college. Ah, those were the days. Let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 130 of Learn Smarter, the Educational Therapy Podcast. I'm Stephanie Pitts. And I'm Rachel Kapp. And today we are so excited. Dr. Rishi Sriram is back. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we just talked to you off air. Maybe we'll air that part on Patreon, but I wanted to share with our audience that you are absolutely the episodes that everybody brings up and talks to us about in person. Mm-hmm. When other professionals are emailing us about something, this is the episode that they bring up as the one that they went and listened to. And Steph just shared that it is our third most downloaded episode, which we're so happy about that. Mm-hmm. The knowledge that you sort of brought to us. And if you go back and listen to those episodes, which we will link in the show notes to this episode, you'll hear, you'll say things. And then we're just silent because we're processing it and thinking about how it could directly impact the students that we're working with. So thank you so much for coming back. I emailed you maybe a month ago and I was like, what else you got for us? <laughs> And you said you're working on research and have done research on talent. And I was really excited about that because it's not really something we've ever talked about on the podcast, but also because I've noticed a trend with parents where they really just want their kids to either have a talent, but more specifically a passion, which I just have to always sort of talk parents back from that because it's a real blessing to have a passion. Most people don't, but I feel like this is going to be enlightening for that population. Yeah, I'm ready to learn. Well, it is such an honor. I have really enjoyed being your guest previously, and I love the work that you're doing. And today we get to talk about something that is so near and dear to me, And I hope that your listeners gain from it as much as they have the other episodes that I'm so honored to hear about. Yay. So we're going to hand it over to you. Teach us, Professor. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't want to repeat too much from our previous episodes, but I also want to acknowledge that someone might be listening to this episode that didn't listen to, to the previous ones that I was on. But on a previous episode, I talked about this real formational moment, right, where I was in my PhD program and a professor of mine handed me 
uh, Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, which was brand new at the time. Of course, her work has become so ubiquitous in education now, but at the time it was brand new and it was the first time I had heard anyone talk about the beliefs that we have about talent or intelligence or learning and how powerful those beliefs are in shaping our behaviors and even our view of ourselves. And while I love Dr. Dweck's work, I think it is so powerful and has made such a positive difference in the world. One of the things that got me is that she's a psychologist who deals with the beliefs about things. She doesn't actually get into whether intelligence is something that can improve. Dr. Dweck says that it's important to believe that, but she doesn't really spend a lot of time on the neuroscience. And so I started to really wonder about intelligence. And the more I learned about intelligence, the more I felt like the modern day presentation that intelligence is partially genetic and partially environmental, I just wasn't buying it, to be honest. The further I dug into the research, the more I became convinced that intelligence was something that was developed. So the nurture side just kept taking more and more and more of the responsibility in my eyes. And the nature side seemed to have a smaller and smaller and smaller play in intelligence. And that's what really led me to care so much about learning and the science of learning. And of course, as a PhD in education, I was embarrassed at how little I knew about learning. And from learning, it really brought me to this sort of realization that what I'm really on a path toward, what I've really been studying without even knowing it, is talent. Because what talent is, is this ability, right? It's our skills. And the things that we talk about when we talk about learning or when we talk about intelligence, we're really putting that under the umbrella of talent. So I went from studying beliefs about intelligence to studying intelligence itself. And then I went from studying intelligence to studying learning. And I soon realized that everything that we do really comes from our brain, our thoughts, our feelings, our actions. And so it just dawned on me that talent is really what I'm most passionate about in this regard. And let me just go ahead and begin with a really bold statement for the fun of it, for no other reason. I have come to the conclusion, as crazy as it sounds, that there is no such thing as innate talent. I believe that talent, all of talent, is cultivated, it's developed, it's learned, that talent is not a cause, it's actually an outcome, and that we as human beings aren't born with talent, but we're born with these amazing brains that have this amazing ability to develop talent in whatever areas that we have access and opportunities and resources for. We're born with the capacity to learn anything. And that's what led me into this framework that I call the five M's of talent. I wanted to share what I was learning about talent. And so I put it into this framework and these five M's that we've touched on a little bit before, but maybe not as explicitly as we will in this episode. The five M's are mindset, some stuff in our brain called myelin, this idea of mastery, motivation, which you've already touched on, and mentorship. Uh, I believe that talent comes from those five M's and that how talented we become has everything to do with the access and the opportunities and the resources that we have in relation to those five M's. 
Wow. Okay. So let's talk about the five M's again. Can you just repeat them? I would love to repeat them. Mindset, myelin, mastery, motivation, and mentorship. And I would just love to unpack with you each and every one of those and what it means and how your listeners can actually use these five M's to improve their talent, to improve the talent of their children, of their friends, of the people that they care about. Let's do it. I'm ready. I feel like I'm in a college class again. I'm so happy right now. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. And so I'm just going to add one more thing. When I started to share these five M's with, you know, you start sharing it with your family, you start sharing it with your friends, people would keep coming back to the same counter examples. They would say, well, what about Mozart, who was clearly born a genius? Or what about Einstein, who become the face of intelligence for us? Or what about somebody like Michael Jordan, who clearly had this genetic athletic ability that surpassed everyone else? And so I've actually spent quite a bit of time studying the lives of Mozart, Einstein, and Jordan to see, are these people who are exception to the rules or not? Mm-hmm. And what I've found is that their lives epitomize these five M's of talent. I was really shocked about some of the assumptions I had made about people like Mozart, Einstein, and Jordan versus when you actually dig into their lives. So as we talk, I would love to share a little bit about the things that I've learned about their lives as well. I'm here for it. Let's go. Yeah, fascinated. (laughs) So let's begin with mindset. Mindset is the belief that you have about your ability to develop talent in the first place. Carol Dweck has done remarkable work in this area. And I love this theory because it's simple and profound. There are two mindsets. There's a fixed mindset and there's a growth mindset. The fixed mindset is the belief that your talent, your ability, your intelligence is fixed. You have what you have and that's that. There's nothing that you can do to substantially change your ability. Growth mindset, as we could all predict, is is the opposite. It's the belief that your talent, your abilities, your intelligence can all increase, improve with effort, with experiences through the environment. And I think what is so interesting about Dr. Dweck's work in this area is that she found that even what you believe about talent can have a remarkably helpful or serve as a large hurdle toward your own development. Because over the decades, she's found that if you have a fixed mindset, and keep in mind that we don't walk around talking about our mindsets, right? Your listeners may have not even heard that term mindset before. This isn't something that we are consciously thinking about. It's in our subconscious. And I'd also like to note that you can have a fixed mindset about playing the violin, thinking, you know, I don't have any musical ability and I never will. And you can have a growth mindset about your ability to write or your ability to play sports. So for each of us, these are domain specific where there are going to be areas in our lives where we feel maybe we have a strong fixed mindset and areas where we feel like we have much more of a growth mindset. But what Dr. Dweck found is that when you have a fixed mindset, you tend to avoid challenges. And the reason that you avoid challenge is because these setbacks that come from challenges are seen as permanent judgments on your ability. 
And in our society, like it or not, we tend to place our own value based upon our performance, right? This is something that we're all trying to work on. I'm certainly working on it. I'm working on it with my children, trying to separate our value from our performance. But in a society that is so performance-based, when we don't perform, our very worth is damaged. Like our self-view, our self-esteem, our self-confidence. And so what happens? Well, we protect ourselves. How do we protect ourselves? By avoiding challenges. Why is that problematic? Because the very things that are meant to stretch our abilities, the very things that are meant to help us learn, become scary things that we try to avoid at all costs. And this has a direct connection to feedback, right? As educational therapists, I imagine so much of your work is giving precise, helpful, specific feedback to those that you work with. Well, if you have a fixed mindset, a fixed view of your ability, feedback is not a friend. It is something that is extremely scary. In fact, it just feels like you're rubbing in uh, criticism in my face. Like I already know that I failed and now you're giving me feedback to just kind of rub it in my face as to how much of a failure I am. And I think the most damaging part of a fixed mindset is that Dr. Dweck has found that when you have a fixed mindset, you tend to view effort as actually a sign of weakness. You tend to become those kind of people who brag about not just doing well on tests, but brag about how little they had to study to do well on that test. And that becomes a very, very unproductive, unhealthy situation because someday all of us are going to face challenges that stretch us. And if we view effort as a sign of weakness, and if we've been spending our time bragging about how smart or talented we are as if it's this innate thing about us, then when all of a sudden we start to fail, we start to meet challenges that are really stretching us, we are going to run in the other direction. We're going to cope. We're going to say things like, actually, I'm not interested in that anymore. Or I don't have a math brain. We're going to create these excuses that allow us to kind of bow out. And of course, That's the opposite of what we want as teachers and learners. There's no development in that. Yeah, it's a lot of the, it's the teacher's fault. The teacher didn't teach me. So much of it becomes external attributions. That's right. It's, I didn't feel well that day. The teacher isn't good at explaining things. My educational therapists, you know, aren't helpful. Mm -hmm. It's a really, really bad situation that becomes extremely difficult the farther you go along. So what happens when you have a growth mindset? Well, I won't belabor the point here, but those with a growth mindset embrace challenges. They don't enjoy failure, but they see setbacks as temporary, as part of the process toward improvement. They embrace feedback. They welcome feedback. They might even seek out feedback. And they view effort as the key component to improvement. These are all psychologically extremely healthy viewpoints to have. When you're embracing effort, when you're embracing challenges, when you're embracing feedback, when you don't necessarily enjoy failures, but you just kind of see that as maybe even a sign that you've really challenged yourself, that you failed. Those are the things that set yourself up success and becoming more talented. And that's why mindset, I believe, is the first M of talent development. This is something that we talk a lot on the podcast about. And when we have 
guests come on who are former clients or current clients in our success story series, those tend to be the learners who were very open and very receptive and very collaborative and tell me what to do to fix it kind of attitude. And it's not to say that when learners come into our practices that are kind of shut down about it, don't get to that point, but it takes longer and we have to build more trust and it has to be okay to be vulnerable in session. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that can hinder mindset is, is this really true? That's the question I had in my mind when I was confronted with Carol Dweck's theory is, okay, it's nice to believe that your abilities can improve, but how true is that? What about the fact that, you know, we're born with brains that are only so smart or so intelligent? And that led me to the work of Alfred Binet, who invented the IQ test. And I was shocked to learn that Alfred Binet invented the IQ test because he so firmly believed that intelligence could improve and he wanted a way to prove it, to measure it, so that he could show the progress that students were making with intelligence. I mean, it's just really, really interesting. And so that really got me into this notion of what happens in our brains when we learn something. What happens in our brains when we improve upon what we learn? And, you know, I understand that your listeners may not be budding neuroscientists, but I do think that the brain is fascinating to all of us. And when I learned what actually is going on inside our brains, it helped me even more so to have a growth mindset. And that's what leads me to this word that maybe some of your listeners have never heard before called myelin, M-Y-E-L-I-N. And we all have heard about neurons. We have lots of neurons in our brain. They're also located in our spinal cord. The best estimate that I've come across is about 86 billion neurons. And neurons have taken a lot of the spotlight when it comes to our brain because they connect to one another. And when they connect, the connections are actually small gaps that we call synapses. And that's where learning occurs. So learning occurs when neurons connect to one another. What I did not know was that neurons have this sort of wire that come out of them where they send signals from one neuron to the next. And believe it or not, there are these cells in our brain called glial cells, G-L-I-A-L, whose job it is when we fire electrical signals and chemical signals in our brain, and we fire those every time we think, every time we feel, every time we act. There is these special glial cells whose job it is to, what I like to say is pave the road. The more we fire particular signals, the more they wrap this white fatty insulation around those signals. The term for this insulation is myelin. And what myelin does is it speeds up the message, the signal across our brain. Whereas someone who is just learning something, those connections have been made, but they have no myelin around that signal. Someone else has been learning and practicing and learning and practicing for years. So the signal is the same, like the connection's the same, but they've accumulated all of this insulation that allows that signal to travel 
faster, stronger, and better. In fact, well-myelinated brain signals travel more than 100 times faster than unmyelinated ones. So when you look at your neighbor and you say, there has to be innate talent, because I look at this person next to me and they're clearly leagues beyond where I am in a way that just looks and feels so natural, so innate. What I am suggesting is that what you're actually admiring is not something innate about that person, but the accumulation of myelin around those particular brain signals that allow them to travel so much faster, so much stronger, and so much better. If I were to put it in a nutshell, I would say that myelin is talent, biologically speaking. Like when we talk about talent, when we talk about differences in skills between people, what we're really admiring, what we're really talking about are the differences in their myelin. Well, it's really weird, but humans are one of the few mammals, maybe the only mammal, where our brains are born with essentially no myelin. I was shocked to learn that humans are the only species where the majority of our brain development occurs after birth. For every other mammal, the majority of their brain development occurs at birth. So by the time they're born, there might be a little bit of development that occurs, but not much. And humans are the exact opposite. When we're born, a little bit of development has occurred, but the vast majority is coming through experience and environment. This is why humans can have much smaller brains relative to our body weight and yet be the smartest species that exists. I was also shocked to learn we don't go through brain development in sort of this linear fashion, right? Brain development occurs in spurts and there are two critical periods of brain development. One of those periods is between the ages of two and seven and the other is between the ages of 12 and 17. So again, if you're looking at someone next to you and you're saying there has to be this thing called innate talent because (laughs) they're picking up these things so much faster, like I just don't feel like I could ever catch up with them. Well, it could be that they've started really honing their skills during one of these critical periods. So we see this a lot with language. It is much, much more difficult to learn a foreign language after age eight, for example. In fact, if you learn a foreign language after the age of 10, the likelihood that you actually learn the accent of the foreign language, it's almost impossible. And yet children are learning, you know, Mandarin, for instance, is considered one of the most difficult languages in the world to learn. It's also spoken by the most people. (laughs) So how is that possible? Well, because these children are geniuses, right? We are born geniuses with these brains that can soak up anything. But what occurs during those times has a lot of variance, right? We have different access to opportunities and, and to learning environments. And so myelin is something that does develop throughout our lifetimes, but particularly in these ages two to seven and between ages 12 and 17. And then the third stage, I might say, is into our 20s. You know, by the time we get to 30 years old, our brains are not stuck by any means. We still have the ability to learn anything, but that's why our learning really starts to slow down and we may not pick up on things as quickly as we once would have. 
Well, that explains the last three years into my thirties. <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. <laughs> wow. I think the big takeaway from this for me is that it's never beyond us. That is so true. And what's fascinating is that people who study the brain, these neuroscientists are really coming around, right? Like they used to think the brain was fixed at a young age. And then they said, okay, your brain's fixed kind of, you know, by the time you're 20. And then they said, okay, maybe not by the time you're 20. And now they realize that your brain is never fixed. You never lose the ability to learn. You never lose the ability to change your brain. That malleability, that shifting might slow down a little bit, but you can learn skills at any age. But certainly those of us who have children or are thinking about loved ones who, who are within those critical periods of brain development, you know, now is the time to really give them the access and opportunities and resources that they need to really make a big difference. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I love the way that you sort of have this broken down for us to the behavioral level, which would be mastery, right? That's exactly right. Mastery is simply put the quantity and quality of practice required to develop talent. And I really want to emphasize that if we talk quantity without quality, then we're missing it. Yeah. And if we talk quality without quantity, then we're missing it. And In terms of quantity, there is a general pattern that it takes thousands of hours of practice in order to become an expert. And I want to be clear on this, that while your listeners are welcome to continue to believe that talent is something that's innate, we have never once discovered a single person that we considered talented in any field, right? So I'm making a very bold statement here. We've never discovered a single person in any field who became talented to a level that we admire, who somehow skipped over the thousands of hours needed to become an expert. Not a single case. So this is where I'm like, well, what about Mozart, right? What, like, wasn't he born a musical genius? Well, I come to find out that Mozart's father was not only a composer, But he was a composer obsessed with his children becoming musically talented. And Mozart's parents actually had several children that they tragically lost at a young age until they finally had Mozart's sister. And they put all their effort into developing Mozart's sister. And she became remarkably talented in music. But when Mozart was born, because women could not become composers, they could be performers, but not composers all their attention shifted to Wolfgang Mozart and his sister was used as a teacher for Mozart. So rather than investing in his sister now, they were saying, no, your job is now to invest in Wolfgang like we are. And so Mozart essentially had his father and his older sister who were teaching him literally starting at the age of two years old. You add to that the fact that Mozart had a piano in his house when the piano had barely been invented yet, right? Right. And you can kind of see that, yes, Mozart did extraordinary things at young ages. At six years old, he took his first musical tour. But it was really that he was accumulating these thousands of hours of what I like to call difficult practice, because if it's not difficult, it doesn't count. 
he was accumulating that at just a younger age. And that's what I see with all prodigies that we study. It's not that they're skipping over what's needed to become talented. It's that they're starting at a remarkably young age. And so in comparison to their peers at the same age, they are much, much better. Mastery is this idea of, yes, it takes thousands of hours. There are no exceptions to that. But it also takes thousands of hours of what one scholar likes to call it deliberate practice. I just mentioned that I like to call it difficult practice. It's the sort of effortful practice that is stretching your abilities. So you can already see a connection to growth mindset. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have a growth mindset, you're not going to stretch your abilities because stretching your abilities means that you fail, right? Stretching your abilities means I'm going to take the AP class, even though that really terrifies me. And I could just take the non-AP class and I know I would do much better academically. Uh, when you have a growth mindset, you say, no, I want to be stretched. And that stretching creates a gap between those who continue to improve and excel, right? And those who become satisfied with their current level of talent. And so the gap just tends to widen and widen and widen. So what I like to say is we need quantity of practice. And with that, we need consistency, right? So when we talked about learning, we talked about how important it is to space out your practice, that the brain likes to sip rather than chug. And then we need a quality of practice that really involves having teachers and guides and mentors, which we'll talk about later, who are there to help us correct our errors, show us the best ways to practice. And so we have this sort of seesaw that's going on, right? When I talk about this with my children, I talk about having a green zone, a yellow zone, and a red zone, right? So the green zone are the activities that you can do very easily. You know, you're getting it correct 90 to 100% of the time. The red zone are the activities that you can almost never do successfully. Uh, You get them correct maybe 0 to 10% of the time. Where we want to place our time and effort is in the yellow zone in that place where we can almost get it right with some consistency, but we are really stretched and challenged and it takes all of our effort, all of our energy. So if you're looking around thinking, well, I'm surrounded by people who are so gifted in these other things and I'm not gifted in anything, I want to be a voice to say they're lying to you. (laughs) They're not gifted in the sense that we think about it. They're people who have worked really hard. This just reminds me of the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours sort of ideology, right? Yeah. So Malcolm Gladwell came out with a really popular book that I'm a fan of. It's called Outliers. And he uses the work of a scholar named Anders Ericsson, K. Anders Ericsson. And What they've found, those who study talent, have found this general pattern that it takes roughly, approximately, an estimate of 10,000 hours for somebody to become an expert. They've also kind of dubbed it at times the 10-year rule, that uh, it takes about 10 years of committed practice in order to reach that 10,000 hours. You know, two things I would say about that is one, it's not a hard and fast rule. It doesn't mean that you can't become an expert at seven or eight or 9,000 hours. It doesn't mean it might not take you 11 or 12,000 hours, but there is this general pattern if you're curious about how long does it take if I really want to be like 
the highest level of expertise, about 10,000 hours. But the other caveat is that it's 10,000 hours of this deliberate, difficult, effortful practice. So I could go out and golf for 10,000 hours and hardly be any better under the guidance of a teacher or a coach where you're really ensuring that the quality of practice is there along with the quantity. Got it. This is why Adam and I, my husband and I hired a tennis coach who, by the way, is 20 years old. Yeah. (laughs) That felt good the first time we met him. We're like, oh, okay. Good for you. Because I've never played before and he wanted to get back into it, but we needed the accountability and he's totally been showing me how to be better. And it definitely is effortful (laughs) practice uh, for sure. And that brings us to the fourth M, which is motivation. So I don't want to discourage your listeners. I don't want them to come away with this message of, oh, if I want to be good at anything, I need to spend 10,000 hours of difficult practice on it. I think that we need to have a sophisticated view of talent development. And that means making choices, realizing that life is full of entries. And when we make one choice, it means an exit with another choice. There's only so much time. We only have so many resources. And so it's okay if we don't want to be world-class or an expert in everything. Motivation is about seeking out what you really want to become excellent in and what you just want to improve some on and what you want to kind of keep minimally acceptable. And I think that is completely okay. So while I would never want anyone to believe they quote unquote don't have a math brain, I do think that there are some people who are going to be energized and motivated and fall in love with math. And there are others who are not, that where math is just sort of this draining thing where they want to have minimal acceptable skills in math and then move on to the things that they really love. So I think motivation is more complex than we sometimes give it credit for. I would define motivation as the continual desire to improve. And I would say to your listeners that strengths are not the things that they are good at. And weaknesses are not the things that they are bad at. Borrowing from an author I love named Marcus Buckingham, he redefines this for me and I want to redefine it for you. Strengths are the activities that make you feel strong. And weaknesses are the activities that make you feel weak. Hmm. So if you're somebody who loves math, like you just love it, but you stink at it, right? All the feedback you've gotten says you are bad at math. I would say that is an area that you should devote your talent development in. If it makes you feel strong, then you've probably not had the confidence. You probably haven't had the growth mindset. You maybe haven't had the right teachers. You maybe haven't had the right coaches or educational therapists to help you along the way. But if you love it, pursue it. I would also say that if you made high grades in math your entire life and everybody says, you know, you're a math genius, but you don't really like math, it's sort of draining. It makes you feel weak. And I would say, good for you that you've made high marks, but that is not the place to devote the time and effort because you cannot and you do not want to devote thousands of hours to developing yourself in something that you don't love because that means that you're not spending thousands of hours developing yourself in the areas that you do love. 
So motivation, I think, is something where we really have to take some time to reflect, not so much on the results in our lives, but on the things that give us a fire, that really ignite us, that make us feel strong and energized versus the things that don't. And so psychologists talk about intrinsic motivation, where we're motivated by an internal desire to do something versus extrinsic where we're motivated by the approval of others or by tangible benefits that we get when we pursue a career because of money, that's external motivation, not internal motivation. Or when we want to make our parents proud and so we say, I'm going to become a medical doctor, you know, that's extrinsic. And extrinsic motivation just does not last, whereas internal motivation really does. And so the question then becomes, you know, if I want to increase my internal motivation, uh, how do I do that? And I think that there are three C's that I want to share about motivation. The three C's of motivation are competence, choice, and community. Decades of research have shown that we can show progress. It really is the best motivator. So when you can show students, when you can show yourself that you are becoming increasingly competent, that you're actually making progress in your talent development, in your skills, it makes you a more motivated person. It makes others more motivated on an internal level. Choice means that when we can choose what we want to develop ourselves in, or maybe even have some choice or some ownership in how we develop ourselves, uh, our motivation increases greatly. And the third thing is community. When we feel connected to others as we pursue something, then we become more and more motivated. So this is why team sports can have such an incredible impact on motivation. I think there's something going on in team sports that we're missing in the classroom. When we engage in team sports, we can see our progress. We can see our points or you know whatever statistics, metrics, You mentioned tennis. We can see what percentage of our first serves are going in. We can see our progress. Team sports are almost always extracurricular. So there's a choice involved with team sports. And not only do we participate, but do we participate in tennis or basketball or football? What might it be? And then, of course, the community aspect. Whereas in the classroom, we see everyone as competition and we're constantly feeling judged in comparison to our peers. On a team sport, it's like, no, the other team, they're the bad guys. Everyone on this side in this uniform, they're my friends. They're for me. And so it creates this family, this community of success that I think is so healthy for motivation and something that we can really think about. When we connect with peers who want the best for us and we want the best for them, it's remarkable in what that does for motivation. Mm-hmm. I had a friend in high school, and this was back in the day when like email was new, but we both had computers and we would email each other about how much we, oh gosh, we were so nerdy, but about (laughs) how much we had accomplished and how much homework. And it was extremely motivating to want to be ahead of her. And we still talk about it. I mean, we're good friends still to this day. I mean, she did better than I did on the SATs. It was highly motivating for both of us. That's exactly what I'm talking about. We need community. We're made for community and community can be remarkably motivating for our success. 
one of the kids that I work with, one of the best things that we figured out is when she studies in a group, she does so much better. Mm-hmm. And convincing her parents that that is okay was something, you know, making sure that she wasn't goofing off. But really, yeah. she takes in the information. And, you know, when we study or talk about things together, she feels so much better and feels like she understands it more. So, you know, the fact that she knows now that she's that kind of learner and she's showing that she can make the grades doing it this way, her parents are now okay with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a great example. Okay. So that brings us to the fifth and final M. So we've talked about mindset. We've talked about myelin. We've talked about mastery. We've talked about motivation. Now let's talk about mentorship. So I'm a teacher and I've said this before on your podcast, but, you know, as a teacher, I feel like teachers in modern day American society are just so undervalued and underappreciated. So I know that's a self-serving statement coming from a teacher, but I think we can all agree that our society tends to put our emphasis on the student, on the superstar, right? We want to see people excel and we want to credit them with innate giftedness and talent bestowed upon them by the gods. You know, there's something awe-inspiring about that. There's something much more boring about the notion that those people had great teachers who were constantly working on their technique, giving them constant feedback, helping them to have the highest quality of practice possible. And yet when we study talented people, we find amazing teachers along the way. Albert Einstein, I was surprised to learn, was far from a genius when he was born. His family was so concerned about his development and his ability to speak, his development overall, that they actually took him to a physician, took Einstein to a physician to say, what is wrong with the development of our child? Einstein's nanny in German had a phrase that translates to almost backwards to describe Albert Einstein. But what happened was that Einstein's family decided to take in a graduate student. And this student would come on a weekly basis and have dinner in the Einstein's home. And Albert Einstein and this graduate student hit it off. And all of a sudden, he started sharing books with Einstein about physics and math and philosophy. And Einstein would just eat this stuff up. And so this mentor relationship was formed over time. Well, we see that with everyone. I've already mentioned Mozart and his father and really his older sister, who deserves a lot of the credit for Wolfgang Mozart's success. We see it with Michael Jordan too. You know, Michael Jordan had this really famous coach named Phil Jackson. And every one of Michael Jordan's NBA championships was under Phil Jackson. And every season Michael Jordan played without Phil Jackson as his coach, he did not win a championship. So he's 100% with Phil Jackson and 0% without Phil Jackson. I mean, Phil Jackson made a big difference. And then right on to Kobe. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So when I'm talking about mentorship, I'm talking about somebody who's there to guide and give knowledge and do these really, really important things. These two things that I see over and over with great teachers. One, they get their students to perform. And two, 
They follow that performance with specific feedback. We talk about SMART goals, specific, measurable, achievable, relatable, timely. We need SMART feedback, feedback that's specific, that's timely, that's immediate, that's relevant. Uh, Students need constant feedback. I think oftentimes with our systems of education, we wait too long before giving feedback or we give these high stakes tests where, you know, you mentioned the SAT. One of the issues with the SAT, right, is that you take it and then you wait months to get feedback. You have to pay money to get the actual answers to the questions, which not everyone even knows about or has the resources to do. And so if the SAT were a low stakes test, I think it could be much more effective for improving people's skills. And I think that's true of all testing, that when we watch great teachers, it's not that they shy away from testing. They don't shy away from high standards. They have remarkably high standards. They might use standardized tests, but what they do is they follow performance with specific immediate feedback. And it's this dance, get the student to perform, provide feedback, try again. You know, the classic movies that we love, Karate Kid, right? Uh, Star Wars with Luke Skywalker and Yoda. Like these are the kinds of things that we actually see in great teachers. They're not necessarily charismatic. They're not awe-inspiring with their speeches. They know their stuff and they get their students to practice a lot and they are giving constant feedback. And they're also helping students to develop a growth mindset, to develop their brains to ensure that their students have the quantity and quality of practice that they need, to motivate their students to continually improve and to not be satisfied with their current levels of talent, and even to get students to mentor themselves, to catch their own mistakes, say, oh, I know what I'm doing wrong and I know how to correct it. These are all things that mentors do. So in some sense, I could say that mentors are people who really beautifully know how to enact these five M's for the development of their students. Wow. I'm just sitting here taking it all in thinking, wow, there's a lot of different things that I want to be able to keep track of simultaneously. Right. So what are some final thoughts, some takeaway for those of us that need a chunk? I very much appreciate that question because I know I've shared a lot. We've talked about a lot. What I want to say to your listeners is that We spend way too much of our time and energy worrying about how talented we are instead of thinking about what we can do to develop our talent. And I want to encourage the people listening that there's at least one educated person out there who spent a lot of time studying this stuff who believes that there is no such thing as innate talent, that talent is not a cause, it's an outcome. Talent is cultivated, talent is developed, talent is learned. And with the five M's of talent, mindset means that what you believe matters for your talent development. You really believe that you can improve. Myelin means how you learn matters. You know, how you develop your brain matters. Mastery is saying that what you do matters. The quantity and the quality of your practice really matter. Motivation means that how much you care matters. You know, if you're passionate about something, you're going to improve in that area faster than you would areas that you're not passionate about. And mentorship 
how you are taught matters. Finding great teachers who can get you to perform and give you helpful, specific feedback is really crucial to your success and development. And all this is under the umbrella of you don't have to become world-class in anything, let alone everything. But I think you can use these five M's as much as you would like to see yourself improve in ways that maybe you never would have allowed yourself to do before. There's so much that I think Steph and I are processing through and we want to make sure to ask you a few more questions about, but we're going to go ahead and take that conversation over to our Patreon. So if you are not a subscriber to Patreon, come join us there, which is www.patreon.com slash learn smarter podcast and join the $5 a month tier to get the rest of our extended conversations with Rishi. I think we've done this almost every episode that we've had you on, which we don't always do, but we know for sure we have more to discuss with you, but thank you so much for coming on again. Yes. Thank you. Oh, it's been so much fun. Have a great week, Smarties. Have a great week.